you don't know me, my name is Jason. Um, I am the youth and associate pastor here. Um, so men, fair warning, I hope you heard it from Tim, but um, if you were at man camp, you must really need to hear this because I'm going to basically do the same thing we did at man camp, okay? And for me, um, I've already given this message a couple times in the last couple weeks, and so God is still speaking to me through it. And so I really am glad all of you guys are here. I, ho- I, hope, um, I hope you really lean into what God has for us this morning. Why don't we pray together real quick, and then we'll get started. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful that, uh, that you speak to us through your word. But there's something special about when, when our heart is in the right place to hear it, when, when we're ready to receive your truth. And so I just pray that you'd do a little, a little work on us right now in this moment and help us be ready for your truth this morning, that, that as we learn, it wouldn't just be information, but that uh, our lives would be changed because of our encounter with you. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so um, I like to start most of my messages out with a story, and what I want to do today is I want to tell you guys about a time whenever I was, uh, I think I was 10, 10 or 11. I know I was in about fourth or fifth grade, and um, you have to know about me, I, I'm, a, I'm an only child, which I know explains a ton, <laughs> right? Um, but since I'm an only child, um, I, I kind of, I, I had friends in the neighborhood to hang out with, but there were times when my parents had to hang out with me. Like, there, it's just a, that's, if you're a parent of an only child, you know that you are your friend's best friend sometimes, or your kid's best friend. And so um, one morning, I convinced my parents to go on a bike ride with me. And it's really cool. We lived in Palisade. We lived um, pretty close to a school where I could play quite a bit. But this day when we took this bike ride, we went down on the river trail. And when I say down, um, where we lived um, to get to the river trail to take a bike ride, you had to go down a really like stupid steep hill to get there, which was a ton of fun going down the hill. But what happens when you go down a hill? You got to go back up it, right? And so my, my mom and dad and I, we went on this cool bike ride, and, and I don't know how long we went. I, I literally don't have much of a memory of the actual bike ride. What I do remember is that they had the kind of bikes that had the gears on it, you know? Like back in, when I was a kid, that was pretty special. If you had a 10-speed bike, you were doing pretty good. But you wouldn't buy one for your kid, right? Like he's going to outgrow a bike like that. Why would, you, why would you spend that kind of money? And so my parents had bikes with gears. I had a bike that was like that little BMX bike with a single speed. And I decided I was going to race my parents back up that hill. And so um, I think I won. To the best of my remembering, um, I won the race up the hill. I mean, and you ever met one of those kids that has too much like little kid energy? right? Everybody like, yeah, I've got that little kid, right? With too much little kid energy. And so I, I raced up this hill, and I'm, I'm sure I won, because uh, that's how memories work, right? You always remember. <laughs> when I got back home, though, I puked everywhere. <laughs> oh, and, and you know, what's weird about that is I think a lot of us have a, a memory probably like that. There was a time when we learned that you can go too far, too fast, too hard, and your body just can't handle it, right? That you can make yourself physically sick by going too fast and too hard. And I wish that that was a lesson that I had learned that had actually stuck with me for longer than, than that day. Because what I've found is, while I don't ride my bike uphill racing people anymore to the point that I'm throwing up, I do live my life at 100% a lot of the time. I spend a lot of time going as far as I can or as fast as I can or as hard as I can on a daily, weekly, yearly basis. Why is it 
that we, we have a tendency to operate right at the edge of what we're able to do. Why is it that when we, we live our life, we usually do so without any margin in there at all? It's 100%. And what the problem here is, even when we rest, and you think about the, the times when you have like a day off, what do you do on your day off? I'll tell you what I do on my day off, all the things I couldn't do because I was working, right? My list, and last night I called it a honeydew list, and my wife was waving at me like, that's not fair, you make your own list. My list for myself is like way longer when I get home and have a day off than it ever is at work. I've got yard work, I've got house projects, I've got things that I need to do that, I, that are falling off the wagon, right? And so I'm constantly working on things on my day off. And then whenever I finally get a minute to just sit down, isn't it interesting, and I'll bet you guys are just like me, I find a way to stay pretty distracted on a regular basis. I find a, a social media website that I can just veg out on or I'll watch TV or, or maybe there's something on my mind that just weighs so heavy that my mind never really even slows down. Isn't it interesting that if we... If we live our lives at that pace where we're just constantly going and going and going, we get closer and closer to a breaking point, don't we? How many of you guys have ever gotten to the point that you were just done? You were just exhausted, right? And I see hands going up. Like Some people are so honest about that, like, I'm there right now, right? So you guys, we get to the point that we're done, and sometimes it's like the big D, like, I'm just done with life. And sometimes it's like, I'm done struggling in my marriage. Right? I'm, just, I'm done being the one that's putting in all the effort. Or I'm done chasing my kids and trying to get them to, to trust God more and trying to live out their life. And I'm just done with the struggle. Right? Or I'm done with my job. I'm done with hearing my boss constantly telling me what I'm not good at. Right? I think so often we feel that sensation. We feel those feelings in ourselves where we're just done. We've put so much effort in. We've gone so hard or so fast or gone for too long, and we're exhausted. And what happens then when we've given all we've got and it's not enough? What happens when we get to that breaking point, when when we've put all the energy that we can muster into something, and it's still not enough. In those moments, we snap, don't we? It's moments like that that we make really bad decisions. We spent the last three weeks talking about wise decisions, right? And it's great when we can take a step back and we can take, moment, take time to think about our decisions, but when we're so burdened by the, the worries of life, by the stress, by the pace, Sometimes we just throw our hands up and we say, I'm done, and we make some really horrible decisions, and marriages are ruined, careers are ended, we drop out of college, right? We do something that we would never have done before, but we're tired of fighting the fight. You know, another reason that we keep up a pace like this sometimes is because there's something in us that's broken. There's something in us that hurts, Maybe a, a trauma, right? Maybe some, something horrible happened to you. Maybe a, a rape. Maybe you were molested. Maybe you were abandoned by a parent or by a spouse. Maybe your friends have all left. Maybe you're lonely. 
and there's some hurt down inside of you, but you know what? I don't notice the pain. I don't notice what's wrong inside of me whenever I just never slow down, whenever I never take a rest, right? I can constantly avoid that pain if I just keep this breakneck speed in my life. And see, the thing is, you don't have to just be busy. It doesn't have to just be your schedule that can occupy your mind, right? Isn't it true that we spend a lot of time worrying, a lot of time in our fears, a lot of things that keep us up at night? Have you ever had that moment whenever your head springs up off the pillow at 3 a.m. and your heart is racing because you've got to get something done that day or because you didn't get something done last week and you've been putting it off and we get to that point when something's going to break, What I want to do today is I want to look at a story in the Bible that I hope is familiar. If if you've been around church for a while, uh, if you've been coming here, I've actually taught about this story from stage before. Um, And so I don't want you to tune out when you hear this story because it'll be familiar. I want you to lean into it, and there's a reason. I think God is so concerned about us when we are that close to the breaking point. I think that God is so concerned for us when we're actually at that breaking point. And I think he cares afterwards too. We're gonna see a story today that speaks directly to that. And so let's lean into it just a little bit. Now, if you have your Bibles, um, before we get it up on the screen, you can start turning. We're gonna be in 1 Kings chapter 19, okay? Before we get there though, I kinda wanna set the stage. We're gonna talk about a guy whose name is Elijah, okay? And I'm, I'm gonna hope a lot of you guys know who Elijah is, but if I was gonna define him in modern terms, I would call him a super prophet, one of God's super prophets. In fact, how many of you guys are, you're into the Marvel superhero movies that have been coming out, or DC? I understand there's like a struggle. Okay, the rest of you that didn't put your hands up are liars, right? Because they're awesome. Those movies are good, right? Even for those of us that are like, I'm not gonna follow the storyline, we still go see them, right? Because they're good. It's cool to see good versus evil in these super heroic scenes, right? This over-the-top kind of drama, If the guys who were making those movies only had Bible characters to pick from, Elijah would be one of those guys that comes in to save the day at the end of the movie. Elijah would be Iron Man, right? He would would be the superhero, and so we're going to call him a super prophet. And so let me tell you just a little bit about Elijah's life before we get into his story, because it matters. So the very first thing that we read about, uh, about Elijah isn't like his backstory. It's not where he came from. Um, it's not like his heritage. It's the very first thing that he does for God is the beginning of his story. And it's in 1 Kings. I think it's in chapter 16. And so you've got this interesting situation where you've got a people of God, Israel, who don't follow God anymore. See, the, the king of the nation of Israel, his name was Ahab, and he had married this lady Jezebel. And I'm going to guess most of you guys don't name your daughters Jezebel for a reason, right? She's a bad guy in the, in the story. And so what she's done is she's convinced the king and the nation to stop following God, stop following Yahweh, and start following the Baals and, and Asherah. And so she's got these foreign gods, right? And so the nation of Israel is totally off track, but it's the king and the queen's fault. Well, the very first thing that Elijah does in the story is he confronts the king, And the way he does it is amazing. He goes up to him and he says, God doesn't like the way that you're running this thing. So I'm going to pray, and it's going to stop raining. 
and it works. Can you imagine that kind of a prayer life when you're like, you know what? No rain for you. Like the soup guy, the, the soup Nazi in Seinfeld, like, no soup for you, right? Like, he's, he's that guy. He's like, no rain for you, king. And it doesn't rain. Think about that. If your prayer life was that successful that you're like, I don't want any rain, and God's like, okay, turns off the spigot. And the crazy thing is, you would, it makes sense, right, that Ahab's like mad about this because this is like judgment on him. And so he runs away. And when, when Elijah runs away into the desert, some neat things happen. The first is um, he literally goes out into the desert and has no way to get himself food or water. And so God brings him meals via crow. And I, for the longest time, I just thought that God was like sending like manna, like some heavenly food that was unique, and, and the, the crows were just showing up with it. Have you ever seen a crow at a campsite? Right? They will steal your food. It dawned on me when I'm reading this that God is literally taking Bob's food and giving it to Elijah out in the desert via crow, like twice a day every day, right? And so you imagine that you're that guy. You imagine that you're, you're Elijah, and you're so close with God that when you pray, the rain stops. And when you're hungry, he sends crows to steal other people's lunch for you, right? Okay, so then the next thing that happens is he meets this widow, and this, this widow and her son are so poor, probably because of the famine that is a result of the no rain, and she's about to die, and she knows it. She's going uh, to make a loaf of bread, her last meal for her son and her before they run out of food. She's got just a little bit of flour, a little bit of oil. And what he says to her in this moment is, if you'll trust me and trust God by making me a loaf of bread out of your last ingredients, then I promise you'll never run out of bread. And she does. It's this huge faith moment, totally different sermon, right? But the cool thing there is for three more years, then she doesn't run out of any food. And so he, he ends up living with this widow and this lady. And so they just constantly have like a never-ending bottle of oil and a never-ending jar of flour, which, total side note, when I was a kid, I imagined if I ever got like three wishes, one of them would have been a Sprite bottle that never ends, <laughs> right? And that's literally his experience. He just didn't have Sprite. He didn't know. So that's, that's, who he, that's how close he is to God, that these sort of things happen, right? Now, at one point, the widow's son dies, tragically. And so Elijah just goes upstairs and brings him back to life. That's a prayer life, you guys. This guy is really a super prophet, but the highlight of his career is what happens right before this story. He comes back to King Ahab after three and a half years of no rain, okay? And he says, I think I'm ready to make it rain again. But I want to prove to you that it's the God of Israel, that it's Yahweh who's going to do it. And so before I make it rain, I want to have a contest between me and all the prophets of the Baals and the Asherahs, right? And so what happened is they gathered all these prophets of these false gods, and there were 850 of them. And so he said, let's go up on the mountain. I want to have a contest, me versus 850. And if you don't like Marvel movies, <laughs> that, that was like the end climax of the Marvel movie. Like it's one against 850, right? And so the deal is they're going to have two different uh, sacrifices. So they build a, two different piles of wood, huge piles of wood. They have a sacrificed animal on each one of them. And then Elijah says, you guys go first. See if you can convince your God to burn up this sacrifice. 
And so he waits, and they dance, and they sing, and they're chanting, and they're praying, and nothing's working. And so Elijah's like, maybe he's on the toilet, right? He like makes fun of, we should read it, it's good. It's in 1 Kings 18. He says, maybe your God's going to the bathroom, like yell louder. And nothing happens, obviously, because they weren't real gods. And then he says, okay, it's my turn. But before I show you the power of my God, I want you to dig a trench around mine, around my sacrifice, and I want you to pour so much water on top of this pile of wood that it fills the trench with water. So you can't, get, you can't imagine that I would just like throw a, a, a Zippo lighter over there, right? Like it's not a trick. And so they douse it with water, and then he, he just says a simple prayer, and God shows up, and out of the heavens comes this fire that consumes not just the sacrifice, but the wood and the rocks and the dirt and the water all of it gone, and this just burned spot on top of the mountain. And everybody's like, wow. <laughs> like, that's what a God's supposed to be like, right? Powerful. And so because of that, he has the other prophets killed, all 850 of them right there on the mountain. And that's where we're going to pick up our story in 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 1. Now Ahab told Jezebel, the king told the queen, everything Elijah had done and how he had killed the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, may the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like one of them. And so she threatens Elijah, right? Let's keep reading. Verse three. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there, while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. He came to a broom bush, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. Why was Elijah afraid of Jezebel? Think about our super prophet for a minute. Think about this guy who prays and rainstorms just go away, right? And then he prays again and they come rolling back in. This is the guy that can call fire down out of heaven. And not to give away too much of the story, but if you were to skip forward to 2 Kings, there's a story about when people were picking on him and he actually calls down fire and like 50 of them at a time die, right? Well, so Jezebel threatens him and he's scared. Why? You'd think that that'd be a small threat, really, in, in Elijah's life for the super prophet. And yet he says, I want to die. He goes 100 miles away when he runs away. And then he leaves his servant there alone, and he goes and he hides under a broom bush, which, by the way, I have no clue what that is. I imagine broom handles sticking out of the ground. I have no clue. Right? He sits down under it, and he says, I want to die. I've had enough. And I wonder how many of us have had that exact same thought. And I wonder how many more of us have had that thought without the word die in it. But we say, God, I've had enough. I'm so done. I'm so done with the struggle. I'm so done with the fight. What's interesting here, the very last line is actually the key. It says, I'm no better than my ancestors. You want to know why he was upset? You want to know what the problem was? If anything was going to change the heart and the mind of the king and queen, you would think fire from heaven onto a soaked pile of wood would have done it. You would think that three and a half years with no rain would have done it. 
And instead of hearing that news and going, wow, we really ought to worship the right God, they're like, I'm going to get you, Elijah. And he goes, I'm no better than anybody who's ever tried to do this before. I'm no better than my ancestors. I'm not actually making a difference. How many of us have felt that in life too? Where we go, man, this seems like there's a lot of hard stuff in life. What difference am I really making? Am I changing anything? Is, Is my life impacting anybody else? And you would think, I'm sure Elijah thought, I sure have a lot of success when it comes to the God stuff. How come it's not making a difference? And listen, if Elijah could struggle with these feelings of having enough and being done, then none of us are immune to that. If the guy who we would say, I wish I had a prayer life like him, I wish that I had that connection with God like he had, if that guy got to the point that he said, I'm so done with this, I just would rather die, then we're not immune to that either. So check out what God does in verse 5. Then he lay down under the bush and he fell asleep. All at once, an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. He looked around and there by his head were some baked bread or a bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. And he ate and he drank and then he lay down again. Isn't it interesting that the first thing that God does here is he makes him eat and take a nap. Never underestimate the power of a nap and a meal. You guys, it's biblical, right? All the men are like, yeah, honey, (laughs) leave me alone. God said nap. Seriously, though, as silly as that is, right, it is interesting that the first thing that God does with his super prophet who is suicidal is he takes care of his physical needs first. And he says, man, you need to eat and you need to rest Isn't it true that whenever we really get to that point in life when we're about to break and we're usually so busy or so upset or we have so much anxiety, what is the one thing that we tend to let go of first? Our physical health, isn't it? We just, it's Burger King for every meal. It's four hours of sleep every night and we're living off of coffee and Red Bull, right? We tend to let go of our physical health first. And isn't it interesting that when God has to deal with this situation in the life of his favorite prophet in the moment, he deals with him physically first. He says, you should eat and you should rest. Let's keep going. Verse 7. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, get up and eat for the journey is too much for you. So he got up. And he ate and drank, and strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. And there he went into a cave to spend the night. What I want you to pay attention to here in this interaction is the angel actually, or or God, through this angel, he's the one who sends Elijah away. Did you notice that? He said, get up and eat. The journey is too long for you. Part of God's solution to Elijah's brokenness, to his, his, the fact that he was just so overwhelmed was you need to get away. And you know what? You might need a vacation, right? Are you a workaholic? Are you that type of person who just can't take a break? And God is saying to Elijah here, and I need you to get away. I need you to get alone. And he sends him away. And what's interesting here is he sends him away to a place that's only seven days away. 
a seven-day walk. It took him 40 days to get there. I just imagine Elijah just, I don't want to do this. You know, he's just struggling as he's walking through the desert. Like, why are we on this trip? This is dumb. My problems are back there, right? <laughs> it took him 40 days to get to the mountain. But you know what is really special about this? That mountain, Mount Horeb, has another name in the Bible too. It's Mount Sinai. If you're not familiar with Mount Sinai from um, the Ten Commandments movie with Charlton Heston, right? Or if you've seen the Prince of Egypt with your kids, right? And you see the Ten Commandments, or if you've read Exodus, Mount Sinai is really important, you guys. Mount Sinai is where Moses, he's, he's out in the wilderness, and he sees this burning bush, but the bush isn't consumed. And so he goes over to investigate, and he encounters the living God on this mountain. And God says, this place is holy. Take off your shoes and treat it like it's holy. Well, then he gets this commission to go deliver the nation of Israel out of slavery in Egypt. And so what does he do once he's delivered them? Where is he going to take these people? Where is he going to take God's people? Where he's going to take them to the one place he knows where his God is at. And so he takes them back to Mount Sinai, and it's at that mountain that Israel, God's people, meet their God for the first time. And I don't know if you remember the story, but it's a scary moment, right? They finally get to the mountain, and it's, it's covered in smoke and fire and earthquakes, and there's a booming voice from the mountain when God talks to his people. And what they're experiencing when they get there is the power of their God. The awe-inspiring, terrifying power of God. And it's at that moment where he makes a covenant with his people. And they say, we want to be your people. And he says, I want to be your God. That's where the relationship begins, is at Mount Sinai, in the midst of all of that power. Now, that's the same place that God sends Elijah on this much-needed vacation. He sends him to that mountain. Let's keep going. Verse 9. And the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? Now, I'm a smart aleck. I would have been like, uh, you sent me here? Like, you tell me. Why am I here? <laughs> right? Um, I don't think that God was actually asking him why you're here. I think what God was asking is, why did you need to be here? What's so wrong that you needed this? Right? And Elijah tells him. I, I love Elijah's answer. Verse 10. He replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant. You know that covenant that we started here at this mountain? They rejected it. They've torn down your altars and put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left. And they're trying to kill me too. And what he's saying is, you know what? This has been hard work being your prophet. Like, this is an uphill battle. I'm constantly fighting for you, and there's no reward. It doesn't seem like it's making a difference. Like, did you see what Jezebel just did? I don't know if this is working, God. It's hard, and there's no reward, and there's no end to it, and there's no help. And I wonder how many of us feel like that in life, too. It doesn't matter how hard we strive, we're always climbing a hill doesn't matter how much effort we put into that relationship. doesn't seem like it ever pays off, right? Or there's no end to the struggle. It's kind of like a treadmill. It's just like, when are the bills going to not overwhelm me? 
and there's no help. I think without raising hands, I wonder how many of us would say, yeah, I feel like I'm alone in my struggle. And I love that he gets a chance to just unload that on God. And he says, here, this is what's wrong. You want to know why I'm here? Because my life sucks, <laughs> right? Elijah thinks that he's there so that God can change his life, so that God can change his circumstances. And I wonder how many of us have prayed prayers where basically we're just saying, here's what's wrong, God. This, 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 and this. Fix it. How many of you guys have prayed a fix-it prayer, right? The rest of you are liars, right? (laughs) Man, we pray those prayers all the time, don't we? Like, oh, God, I just, I don't know what to do about this. Why don't you just fix it? That'd be great, right? Why don't you just change everything that I'm dealing with? Would you just change her heart for me? so that I don't have to fight this fight anymore? Would you just change my boss into like not a jerk, right? Would you just change my financial situation? Please give me a better job. Please make that lender forget that I owe them money. Please just fix it, right? How many of us have prayed fix it prayers? And I think that's what Elijah's doing here. God gave him the chance. He said, what's wrong? And he said, I need you to fix this, See, God actually does know what he needs. He needed, first of all, though, to give him a chance to get it off his chest. Let's keep reading. Verse 11. The Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. You see, God actually does know what Elijah needs, and what he needs is a mountaintop experience. He needs one of those encounters with the living God, right? And so he says, why don't you get out of the cave? I'm about to walk by. And you know what? This was the time for God to go big, right? If you think about Elijah's experiences are usually way up here, right? Like when God shows up, God shows up in a big way, and now it's personal. And he needs something big, right? And I think most of us crave proof for the power of God in our lives especially when we're desperate, especially when we're at the point that all the energy that we can give isn't enough anymore, when everything that we have is on the table and it's still not working. And I think we crave the power of God. That's the moment that we want to see the God of Mount Sinai, like just show up with the booming voice and the smoke and like fix it, right? We need the power of God. We feel so small We need him to be so big, right? But God's going to teach Elijah something here that is so important, and it was good for him to learn, and it's good for us to learn. Let's keep reading. Verse 11. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind, And I think about a hurricane or like a tornado, right? And literally rocks are flying sideways through the air and they're crashing into each other. It says the mountains were torn apart. And you can imagine the violence in that moment and the noise, right? The speed at which the wind would have to be going to actually tear a mountain apart. But the Lord wasn't in that. And after the wind, there was an earthquake, 
but the Lord wasn't in the earthquake. And I imagine Elijah's in his cave and he can't figure out if it's safer to be outside or inside because the rocks are falling down on him, but the mountain's shaking. All that fury and power that could move a mountain says the Lord wasn't in an earthquake either. After the earthquake came a fire, and I'm sure Elijah's like, this is it. When God shows up, he shows up in fire. I just did this back on Mount Carmel, like, fire, and it's God, right? And so there's fire. And the heat coming into the cave is just giving him a sunburn. But when it's all done, it says the Lord wasn't in the fire either. These are three big obvious opportunities where God probably could have shown up, right? It made sense for God to show up. See, we often think that we need God to show up in huge, mountain-moving, earth-shaking, burn-it-to-the-ground kind of ways. We think that if God is going to actually show up in the midst of my struggle, in the midst of my pain, when I'm at the end of my rope, it's going to have to be this big. And God said, I know what you're expecting, Elijah. Like this? Like, like the wind? I'm not in that. How about an earthquake? I'm not in that. And the fire? You know, I wasn't in that either. Then verse 12. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and he went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. And I imagine if you were in the back of the cave looking out, after all of that noise, after all of that fury, after all that violence on the mountain, it gets so quiet that as you see the silhouette of Elijah walking out, you can hear the gravel crunching under his sandals. There's literally silence. And at the mouth of that cave, in the silence, in the stillness, God whispers in the ear of his super prophet. It's a whisper. It's an intimate moment when he says, I know what you need. You need to encounter the living God, but you don't need it in the fury and the excitement and the power. You need it in your heart. You need it in you. So it's this quiet, tender moment. And so God showed up, but he, didn't, he showed up when the dust settled, when the trembling stopped, and when the fire had died down. It was in the stillness and in the quiet that God showed up. And you know what? I don't think it was just the stillness of that cave. I think it was the stillness of Elijah's heart too. I think that God had to take him through the other experiences to show him that when there's so much going on and there's so much excitement and so you have these big expectations and these big worries, you can't hear me. It's in the stillness of your heart that you're going to hear me, Elijah. And so a friend of mine told me something a week or two ago um, that I thought was so appropriate for this conversation. I wrote it down. I'm going to share it with you guys. He said, your soul needs your body to slow down sometimes. I'm going to read that again. He said, your soul needs your body to slow down sometimes. That there are times when your soul needs to play catch up a little bit, right? There are times... When I, have you guys ever had that moment when you are so physically exhausted that you're just excited to crawl into bed and then you can't sleep and your mind is just, just reeling, right? What is that? 
What is that? When you're, when you're so tired, but you can't sleep. Maybe it's your soul saying, can you include me for the next 30 minutes? Right? Here's some things that are heavy for me. Right? And your soul is just needing to play catch up. And so, you guys, this, this happens for a couple reasons. Could be simply because you're busy. Right? It could be uh, maybe if you're here and, and you're starting out your working years or you're a teenager and you're about to right? And you've got so much of your life in front of you that you've just, you, you just want to put your nose to the grindstone and make a difference, right? And so you're busy proving. You're busy putting effort in. You're busy paying it forward for your life, right? And all of the fear and anxiety about what happens if I fail weighs on you. Maybe you're in the middle of, of your working and child-rearing years, and you're probably making about as much money as you could ever hope to make, you're at the peak of your earning potential, and yet you're buried in debt. And you've created a lifestyle of just go, go, go to pay for that toy, that toy, that sport, that sport, that credit card. And you're afraid that you can barely keep your head above water. It keeps you up at night. Right? Or, or maybe you've finally gotten to the point that you realize this isn't all a Disney movie, and just because you got married doesn't mean you're going to be happy. And it's hard work. And you're like, how many more years am I going to have to do this before it's smooth sailing? Right? Or maybe you're at the end of your working career and you're looking forward to retirement. Or maybe you've retired and you're like, I don't know if I've, I do the math. I don't know if this is going to work. How am I going to live? Right? All, all of my favorite people in my life are starting to, to pass away. And I'm looking for, forward at that time in my life. And it's scary. Right? And we've got so many different things at different stages of our life that just weigh on us. And so maybe you're busy, but maybe it's the busyness in your mind, in your heart, that's the problem. Or maybe it's neglect. Maybe your soul needs to catch up with your body because you've been outrunning it on purpose because of some trauma or some pain or some failure. And you say, you know what, if I, if I just... If I'm truly alone and truly quiet for long enough, I have to think about that rape again. I have to think about being abandoned. I have to think about who I'm not or who I am. And you say, I don't want to have those feelings. And so if I'm just busy, I don't have to. Right? And sometimes, regardless of whether or not it's busyness or neglect, your soul needs to be taken care of. Your soul needs to rest. And I think that's what we're longing for, you guys. I think we're longing for our souls to rest, for who we are on the inside, not our body, right? You can get a good night's sleep and feel pretty darn good in the morning. Something a little deeper, something a little bigger. We need to rest on the inside. This idea of, of your resting soul, that actually is so biblical. We find it in the Old Testament and the New. And so check this out in Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 16. This is what the Lord says. Stand at the crossroads and look. Ask for the ancient paths. Ask where the good way is and walk in it. And you'll find rest for your souls. Now, what's interesting is this is in the middle of one of God's complaints about the nation of Israel. He's complaining about his people. And what he's saying is, I told you this a long time ago and you won't live this way. You won't rest. You're so busy. And so what he says is, stand at the crossroads. And I imagine, you know, thousands of years ago, the crossroads were two dusty paths that like crossed in the desert, right? One's headed to Jerusalem, one's headed to Rome. And that's the crossroads. 
How much busier are we in 2019 than that? Than that crossroad would have been. I feel like most of our lives look more like one of those busy interstate exchanges, right? Like you go to a city that grew too fast and they're just like, we got six interstates and we'll just, you got this weird loop-de-loops and it's like a mousetrap, right? And you don't even know, if I turn left, am I actually gonna get to where I need to go, right? And I got people flipping me off because I'm not using my blinker because I'm more worried about the guy in front of me and it's just so busy and so hectic, Right? And I would say that's probably a better description of our lives. And what God would say is, what if you got off the road for a minute and stood still? Notice the very first thing he says here is stand. Stand at the crossroads. Not coast through it. Not pick a direction and start running. Stand at the crossroads. And look, ask for the ancient paths. There there are ways that have been the right way to live your life the entire time humanity's been on earth. Do we even know what they are, right? It says, ask for the ancient paths. Ask for the good way. And you know what? Sometimes it's worth just stopping and finding out. What's the good way? What, what, what would God have me do at this crossroads? What would God have me do with this mess of traffic in my life? It'd be better to stand still for a moment and know where the good way is than just pick a road and run for a while, wouldn't it? And he says, you'll find rest for your souls. I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to put our main point up on the screen here. God speaks the clearest when your heart is the quietest. I think Elijah had to learn this in the cave that day. God's going to speak the clearest when your heart is the quietest. And when the the fury of the mountain was finally over and, and the busyness of his life was over and he was away from all his struggles, away from all of his frustrations, all of his success and his career, and he's 40 days out in the desert alone in this quiet cave, that's when God speaks. God speaks the clearest when your heart is the quietest. It's not that he's not talking the rest of the time, but if you're really wondering what he's saying... Maybe your heart's just not quiet. You know, actually, if you think about Jesus, Jesus made a point to get his heart quiet on a regular basis. He's kind of a a weird guy, Jesus. He would give up physical rest to make sure that his soul was rested. He'd get up early when nobody else was awake, and he would walk up the mountain by himself so that he could be alone with his father in the silence, right? In the Garden of Gethsemane, everybody else is sleeping because it's the middle of the night. (laughs) And he's like, no, I need to be with my God. It's interesting then when Jesus, the one who had a pretty good practice of making sure his soul was resting, he said this, and um, I have this coin, actually, before we do. I have this coin. I got at man camp this year. Um, Every one of the guys got one. Guys, I don't know if you've got one in your pocket, but it says uh, Matthew eleven twenty eight on the back. It's an interesting reminder. Let's read it together. Jesus said this, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And I love this because he says, are you that person that's tired, weary? Are you worn out? Or are you so heavy burdened, so overwhelmed, so everything is so heavy in your life? Why don't you come to me 
and let me hold that for you. That's what a yoke is. A yoke is two animals that are tied together to share the work. And what he's saying here is, I'm strong. (laughs) If If you'll partner up with me, I can do all of the work and it'll be easier for you. I'll hold it. I'll take that. This is all of you who are weary and burdened. Why don't you hand me the things that make you weary and burdened and find rest for your soul. So I'm going to invite uh, Pastor Winston to come up. And, and here in a minute, he's going to play a song. And I asked him to play this specific song um, because it's been ministering to me in my heart for 20-plus years. Um, if you don't know it, that's okay. The words will be on the screen. I want it to soak in and just hear the truth said over you. Okay, if you, do, if you do know it, I want you to sing along. But before we do, let's come back to our main point, that God speaks the clearest when your heart is the quietest. I want to do something just tangible and real here for a second. Would you bow your heads with me? Everybody, every head bowed, every eye closed, nobody looking around. This is just a you moment. Now, what I want you to do is I want you to picture in your mind that thing that keeps you up at night. Picture that fear, that worry, that relationship. What is that thing that has you so heavy burdened in your life? What are you at the end of your rope with, the end of your capacity, the end of what you have able to give? Or what is that thing that you've tucked away in the dark recesses of your heart and you keep ignoring because you're so busy? I want you to picture that. Now, I want you to turn that into, in your mind, turn it into something tangible, right? Is it your husband? Is it a dollar sign? Is it an education? Is it a book? Is it, what is it, right? What is it that you're afraid of or that hurts or that worries you or that occupies your mind and keeps your heart from being quiet? Now, with your palms up, would you hold that thing up into the air? You can hold it at your lap. You can hold it at your shoulders. You can hold it over your head, but nobody's looking around. You don't have to feel weird. I want you to picture that whatever you're struggling with, whatever it hurts, whatever it is. And now, imagine Jesus walking up to you and looking you in the eyes and smiling. And he bends down to take this thing out of your hands and you're thinking, no, it's so ugly, it's so gross, it's, I don't don't know if I want to let go of control of it, whatever, and he, none of it bothers him. He's so happy to take that out of your hand. Soak in that moment for a second. That he says, I will hold this for you so you don't have to. Let your soul rest for a minute. And what we're going to do in this illustration, we're going to let this sit long enough for it to be awkward. (laughs) For the next minute or two, let's just practice what it's like to have a silent heart. Let's just sit here. And if something comes back into your mind that's separating you from the presence of God, lift it back up. Watch Jesus take it away, smiling the whole time so that you could rest in the Father's presence. Let me ask you guys one more question. What do you need to do to quiet your heart on a regular basis? 
What do you need to do to hand Jesus those things on a regular basis so that your heart can be quiet, so that your soul can rest, so that God really has your attention and can speak into your life? What do you need to do to quiet your heart on a regular basis? You need a pattern of real rest. God would call it Sabbath. We schedule everything else. What if you schedule the time two to five on Sunday and said, look, I'm gonna, I'm gonna leave my phone on the counter. I'm not gonna check any emails. I'm gonna start this time by giving God what I care most about and I'm just gonna be. What if it's a place? What if you need to go somewhere else like Elijah did? Because everywhere that you go, there's something to do, there's something to worry about, there's something that reminds you of pain. What if you said, hey, a couple times a month, I'm gonna go to that place that I just, I feel connected to God. I'm gonna go there. What about boundaries? Maybe what you need to do to quiet your heart on a regular basis is you need to be able to tell other people, I need, I need you to leave me alone on Sundays. Right? I need you to leave me alone on Tuesdays, whatever. Pick a time, right? I, I need some boundaries in my life where you can't, you can't bring worry and heartache and, and fury and anxiety in, in. But answer this question for yourself. What do I need to do to create real quiet time where my heart is quiet? Let me pray over you one more time and we can go. Heavenly Father, we're thankful that you've, you told us from the beginning to rest. You know how important this is and we're so sorry that we neglect this, that we live a lifestyle where we just abandon this plan of resting. Help us to rest. Help us to rest in you for our souls to rest. Would you carry our burdens? Would you carry us when we're weak? Pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.